Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace, the podcast from War Room, the online journal of the United States Army War College. Thank you for joining us for another episode. I'm Tom Brasino, a professor at the War College and an editor for War Room, where I work on the Dusty Shelves series, where we take new looks at older or forgotten books and documents. In keeping with that, our subject today is Brigadier General Samuel Lyman Atwood Marshall, better known as SLA Marshall, or sometimes by his byline, SLAM. Uh, I am joined virtually t- today by three guests. Matthew Ford is a senior lecturer at the University of Sussex, now awaiting publication of his second book, Radical War, Data, Attention, and Control in the 21st Century. His first book is on small arms innovation and called Weapon of Choice, Small Arms and the Culture of Military Innovation. Robert Engen is an assistant professor in defense studies at the Canadian Forces College and the author of two books on infantry in the Second World War and multiple articles and chapters on SLA Marshall. Rob Thompson is a historian with the films team at Army University Press out of Fort Leavenworth. He is the author of Clear, Hold, and Destroy, Pacification in Fu Yen and the American War in Vietnam. Matthew, Robert, Rob, welcome to A Better Peace. It's great to have you all here today. Very pleased to be joining you from London. Very good. And uh, very, very pleased to be joining you from Kingston, Ontario. And I'm happy to be joining you from frozen Kansas City. Very good. All right. So uh, as we say, and I'm here in Pennsylvania uh, at, at the War College. So just a bit of background on our subject. Uh, Marshall was born in 1900. He joined the Army in late 1917 as an enlisted man, saw some action with the 90th Division in World War I, got a commission, became an officer in 1919, and then returned to civilian life. He became a journalist in the interwar years, eventually focusing on military affairs and writing his first book called Blitzkrieg in 1940. He joined back up into the service as an officer in World War II in the Army, went to the Historical Division of the General Staff, and then conducted interviews with officers and troops after battles in the Pacific and Europe. Thereafter, he covered all of America's wars until his death in 1977. Uh, most of his dozens of books consist of historical accounts of wars and battles, often from the up-close perspective of the troops he interviewed. His most influential commentary on war was a 1947 book called Men Against Fire. Uh, this podcast today, who we're talking about today, came from, uh, of all places, a Twitter thread by Matthew on Marshall, which led to the rest of us chiming in with our thoughts because Marshall tends to uh, draw out historians. Uh, he's an evergreen subject. For military historians and analysts, but maybe is not so well known by wider audiences and, as, and especially by the military professionals who have felt, if not known, his influence. So let's talk about that. Marshall has often been called a historian, and many of his works are treated as histories of action in wars. Rob Thompson, in your work on Vietnam, you've encountered Marshall's publications about battles and war. Tell us about those. Did you find them valuable? How well do they hold up? So for my work, I've read Fields of Bamboo, and what led me to that book was that a veteran told me that uh, it covered battles in Fu Yen. So read it. Uh, it's very vague in terms of uh, like you know no real place names. It could be you could be talking about almost anywhere. If the veteran hadn't told me it was about Fu Yen, I probably never would have believed it. But it was a, at least a starting point to give me a feel for the province. Um, but I did not cite it specifically. I didn't feel like I could trust everything uh, Slam was was saying in the work. It, there just wasn't enough specifics. 
no citations. Um, so it, it read more like a good war story than history. So uh, Robert or, or, or Matthew, have either of you ever used any of his his histories of, of battles accounts like that as opposed to this sort of, we'll come, we'll, talk, we'll come back to Men Against Fire, but what did you guys, have you guys ever had a chance to use any of his stuff? I've read a great deal of his work. And while there are elements of uh, getting to know the soldiers on the ground, there are some good stories that come out of it. Um, I've never seen slam as a particularly credible source and we as you said we'll get back to talking about men against fire but it kind of casts something of a of a shadow over my view of the rest of his body of work and the credibility of of what he was uh, bringing to it so i don't treat his work as history i mostly treat it as something to talk about well in in, in contrast to rob and robert um yeah, I have had to use uh, Slam Marshall. Um, in you'll find some references in my book, Weapon of Choice. But the question as to his how, how good he is as a historian, um, this is the, this is why I put the Twitter thread together in the first place because I knew that it would provoke um, historians, especially Robert. I think I was see if I could needle Robert into into <laughs> responding on Twitter uh, uh, because um, Slam Marshall. It seems Slam's a a, a red rag to a bull for historians, because you know what we want as a historian. As a historian, is we want all the evidence to be set there to, in the background for us to be able to um, go back through the evidential and causal chains to forensically establish whether he's speaking uh, the truth, uh, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And um, for for every historians to discover that he's actually a bit of a how should we. The worst thing for a historian is to be an academic historian. Surely, must be something to, to be described something along the lines of being a, a journalist. And if you said a journalist to an academic historian, everyone would run to the hills. You can't be a journalist. We do proper research, proper writing. And Slam Marshall, for his all, all of his um, wonderful prose, I, I really think his prose is very, very good. He's, he he mobilizes you to think about. Um, battle differently uh, and is thoroughly engaging a really solid and interesting read got me really f- uh, interested I read his uh, uh, book on the Korean War and uh, use of uh, small arms in the Korean War and I just really pr- provocative but only then to find all these historians moaning and whinging about how accurate he was was just too much for me really which is what prompted me to write this Twitter thread uh, and I can I can talk to the academic reasons why I like slam. But, you know, um, historians complaining about Marshall's bit, you know, what, what, of course they're going to do that. You know, it, they've got to defend their profession from journalists. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I hear you, Matthew. I, I would only say that uh, he called himself a historian. I called himself <laughs> a military historian, uh, which. It says something about military historians, though, doesn't it, really? Well, it does. But it, <laughs> but it, but it's also it says something about historians in general that. Yeah. You know, that, that we, you know, we want to uh, be able to track. Well, we want to be we want to be storytellers, but we also want to be able to track back the uh, you know the sources and where they came and, and confirm them and use them as best we can. So, what, what ends up with Marshall, I think, is that while he's claiming to write these big accounts of telling you what happened in a battle, what he really is, if you can trust it, which is a problem with him, you know, what he's really doing is giving you a perspective of of you know, maybe some of the soldiers, some of the individuals involved 
uh, if he told their story well. Uh, and there's really sort of hard, like like Rob, like like Rob said, you know, you might not even know where it's at if you know from that perspective of that soldier. So it's he's putting it into the context and telling you what it all means in a way that is uh, doesn't tend to meet the standards of what we would of what we would count as history. Uh, you okay, know, so evidential I think, standards. Yeah, so I would say, um, you know, you think of somebody, you compare him to somebody like an Ernie Pyle, you know, and. Yeah, and I think that he would probably belong more in the category of an Ernie Pyle had Ernie Pyle survived and maybe wrote some books about accounts of the of the of the instead of just you know, instead of or articles about the battles he saw and started to make larger conclusions and then maybe we'd have that same issue with Ernie Pyle. But as it is, we say, oh well, Ernie Pyle was a great combat reporter. We can use some of his stuff. Uh, I mean, the title of my master's thesis is is from him, so yeah, I, I you know trust him a lot more that way. Um, and I think the other thing with with when it comes to Marshall as a as a sort of as a as a chronicler of battles, you know, he, he takes he takes and a lot of us have given him great credit for sort of setting up this battlefield interview thing of going into units immediately after they come out of action and talking to them about what happened and trying to reconstruct what happened from their perspective. And it's pretty valuable. And it sort of leads to it has led to in the historical profession as Kurt Peeler is a historian down down at Florida State has pointed out that this the you know the massive expansion of oral history is a source uh, in the historical profession particularly in military military history kind of leads the way in that in the in the entire historical profession and it kind of comes out of this world war ii uh, experience uh, so and he has he gets great credit for it but sometimes we forget and i think this is partially marshall's doing uh, him kind of blowing his own horn that that a lot of other people did it too forrest pogue went out there, Hugh Cole, um, a lot of these guys were out there doing these, these battlefield interviews. And then actually a lot of the battlefield interviews are actually uh, kept. You can, you can read them on, on there on microfilm or microfiche, uh, out there. And I don't know if they've been digitized yet, but you have all these unit actions and they're really, they're fascinating. Uh, if you, if you want to go through them and dig through them. Um, but I think, but, I think- uh, but the, the difference is right. The professional military historians tended to do it with much more care, uh, when they used those. And, and that's where Marshall's tends to sort of fall flat. And like you said, it's somebody, Rob, who kind of comes in on it on the sort of more back end in Vietnam goes, hey, there's this, you know, great, interesting, well-written account, but it, I can't use it. Yeah, exactly. That's what I faced that it was a uh, it was great reading, you know, it was evocative. But at that point, I'm trying to piece together what happened in the province and I'm left with, you know, vague descriptions of locations, maybe some place names that don't quite mean much to me like i don't understand why that place is important no one else has mentioned it so it it was like a a puzzle piece to a puzzle i didn't know where that puzzle was that makes any sense yeah i was doing a puzzle that didn't have the picture of it yeah and one of the one of the characteristics of marshall's books as well was a tendency to do a lot of name dropping as he believed that every time you actually put someone's name in a book then you know you've sold 10 copies of that person and their entire family as well so i don't know i i I, matthew i don't really have a problem with him as journalist from a well maybe there's a bit of academic snobbery involved in this but i don't (laughs) it's not his journalism that i i take issue with i don't i don't I don't fault his methods in terms of gathering soldiers and, and talking to them. Like there's some, there's some innovative things there. Um, and I certainly don't fault any of the questions that, that are ultimately raised because of him. But I think that slam went into particularly his interviews during the second world war and, and thereafter as well with a very well-developed 
idea already formed in his mind of what the main problem was and what he was going to talk about and what his findings were going to be. And that whatever whatever discussions were had with the troops were ultimately going to reflect the opinions and the findings of SLA Marshall rather than what was then you know listening to what was going on on the ground. And you know there's there, there's one of one of my favorite anecdotes from from Slam was um, taken straight from his memoirs when he's talking about his first combat experience as a as a as a combat observer as a as a as official historian going into uh, Mackin Island in 1943. And when he, they went in there onto the ground, he, he, he said that the his overwhelming sense was that the soldiers were shooting too much. They were panicky. They were trigger happy. They were shooting at everything, um, including things that did not indeed and should not have been shot at. And but that he consciously chose to downplay this and ignore this because he didn't think that that was the real problem. The real problem was soldiers not shooting their weapons enough. And there's there's you know there there's some there's some details you know Marines versus the conscripts in in Europe and you can get down into the specifics here but my point is that he went into Europe and he went into a lot of these interviews knowing what he was going to find and that speaks poorly of both his journalism and his credentials as a historian I would say and therefore treat, makes a lot of what he ultimately came up with quite suspect yeah, so let me let's let's transition to that. So I, and I think that if he had only been a reporter who wrote the types of accounts that we've been talking about, uh, he probably would have, uh, you know, probably would have faded from memory. Um, maybe he'd be, you know, a, a kind of like I said, kind of an Ernie Pyle, probably not as loved, but uh, as Ernie Pyle was, but something like that. Um, but still kind of had, had, and maybe not even that that uh, that prevalent. But the problem or the issue is that he set his heights higher, especially in this book, Men Against Fire, which spelled out an argument. And this is for our audience's sake, this ratio of fire argument and all of the many responses that followed that, that we've alluded to. So, so Robert, in our discussion of Marshall, you summed him up as a as a snake oil salesman. Uh, so let, let's see, let's set this there. So I, so I take it you have strong views about him, as we pointed out in this issue. So can you tell us about the, the ratio of fire? What is it? What does it mean? And then tell us about the controversy over it and, and then your take on, on the subject. All right. In 1947, Marshall published a book called Men Against Fire that was what he is best known for. It was supposedly a study, a compilation of, uh, of many of his analytical findings from the field doing uh, interviews with infantry rifle companies during the Second World War. And... The main point that he settles upon is, and what well, many, there are many points in the book, but the main point, as I see it, and that is drawn from it for the most part by historians and analysts, is this idea of the ratio of fire. That in any given American infantry rifle company, you would only have 15 to 20% of soldiers who would make any use of their weapon whatsoever in combat. And that included people who were firing a shot for for suppression who threw one grenade who made any any use of their weapons only 15 to 20 percent and marshall wanted was was of course uh, uh curious as to why this was um and postulated a number of theories about uh, a universal generalizable and universal trait of humans in combat that we fear aggression that we fear killing and that this is this is this is observable 
far outside of the context of the United States Army in the Second World War. Um, and there are there are variations on it. He said that at best you never got more than a quarter of your soldiers firing their weapons. Um, there there were there were some uh, some variations in terms of crew served weapons. There were um, a few other circumstances. You're, you're really well trained soldiers. You could get up to maybe twenty five thirty percent, but it was still only a minority who were ever firing. And this raises all sorts of questions, and it raised a lot of questions at the time about motivation about morale, about cohesion, about the fitness of soldiers uh, to actually be in combat, about selection procedures for how we select who is going into combat. And Marshall, Marshall was, as we, I, I co-wrote an article with, um, with uh, the, the now sadly deceased uh, Professor Roger Spiller um, from Leavenworth recently on uh, SLA Marshall and what the kind of the cultural milieu that he was writing in. And there was a lot of this stuff, this, this critical um, aspect of looking of, of thinking that the American male was no longer fighting fit. There's a lot of that in the air and, and that, that Marshall was kind of picking up on and that you can kind of, you can see elements of it in his ratio of fire argument. And Marshall made quite the career for himself thereafter, not just as a journalist reporting on war affairs and on military uh, and what was going on, but as uh, something of a, of a self-made social scientist. He was, he was, uh, commissioned to to do similar studies on the ratio of fire in Korea and uh, Vietnam using his um, using his specialized methods of infantry company interviews and according to Marshall um, the he thanks to the innovations in training that had been introduced because of him um, by Korea by the time they get to Korea the the problem has has been reduced sharply and only about half of soldiers are no longer firing their weapons and by the time they get to Vietnam they've, they've really fixed this problem and practically everyone is making uh, fulsome use of their weapons and this is and, and he, his this has been treated by many military historians many uh, people within the military profession across on, on both sides of the Atlantic as a general principle of warfare that only a tiny number of soldiers will actually take part in combat and there's been a lot of exploration over over decades as to as to why this might be um and just to to kind of bring that full loop, I don't think any of that's right. I think that I think that Marshall was uh, I think that Marshall had come to this conclusion based upon his own reading, his own extremely simplified reading of Ardent de Pique, a French military writer from the 19th century who made a a similar but I would say better grounded assertion about uh, about uh, the combat that he had observed in the late 19th century. And that he was um, that his his observation Marshall's observations during the Second World War were very tailored to what he wanted to find. There's no evidence that he was collecting statistics that this is that the his ratio of fire is anything more at best than his own his own impression. Um, and we have some conflicting evidence from other countries that were fighting alongside the Americans that this was certainly not a universal experience of uh, of infantry ground warfare. I think I think you've just I think you've just blotted us all out from talking for the next ten minutes, haven't you? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well. Okay, so so Matthew, let, let's let's go, let's go to you then. Let, let's ask this question then you. So you you this is all good. I think you, your points well made, and I'll you know, maybe add something on here in a little no, bit. Excellent. But the 
But Matthew, so you, this started with your your Twitter thread, right? And and, and you looked at, at Marshall from a different angle. Uh, and I, you said, and I'm, I'm going to put this out here because I, I want to maybe make this a little a uh, little more accessible to a general audience. You know, you, what you said though is that that Marshall's work and the response thus far has has, in your words, failed failed to foreground the socio technical relationship between the soldier and their weapon. But you credit him with identifying a problem with users, in this case soldiers, that engineers already knew about and were working on. Can you explain that for the common listener out there and, and what, what that means and why it matters? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think all of what Robert has just said is um, a series of a set of answers that I've come to know and love uh, when it comes to how historians, generally speaking, think through the importance and the significance of SLAM. But the, the angle that I come at this from is one in which after the Second World War, you have, you have a series of um, challenges around how to, what types of technology to take forwards into, for the infantrymen and infantrymen in battle. And the question arises because we've got battlefield problems that engineers understand, especially in relation to whether to introduce automatic weapons into the infantry section or the squad, uh, where SLA Marshall has effectively uh, sloganized, uh, identified, named, uh, pointed out where issues are in, in, in the way soldiers use their weapons. Um, and in particular, what he's what engineers are doing is just saying, well, can we come up with a series of um, technical solutions that will help the user use their weapon more effectively? In this respect, Engineers have understood that soldiers can't really, uh, haven't been able to use their weapon. Can't. I mean, I, I uh, glibly uh, describe this on Twitter as um, soldiers can't shoot straight. And uh, whilst that sounds glib, there is plenty of evidence to show that uh, soldiers have, you know, never really been good at uh, marksmanship or shooting. Um, and uh, and I can show you know if you if you have a look at Weapon of Choice, my book, you'll see some of the evidence for that. Um, the question for engineers is, can you design a technology that actually addresses or alleviates some of the problems that um, associated with uh, soldiers' shooting skills? Um, and in that respect, you're running into an institutional culture that doesn't want to admit necessarily that it's got a, it's got a problem. Right? The infantry, generally speaking, they're already, if you like, under attack from people who are uh, services, service arms like the uh, uh, Air Force, like people in uh, tanks, artillery. Uh, you've got a nuclear battlefield emerging. You've got the, the, what role will the infantry have in this future battlefield? And th they are struggling to defend themselves uh, in this new context. And one thing that they will want to say is, is that they're good at skillet. They've got good skillet arms. You know, there's a their institutional identity is associated with their skillet arms. But what happens if you're an engineer and you know that that's not entirely an accurate description of how they tend to work, right? Uh, and so, uh, Marshall kind of raises that as a as an idea and sloganizes it, and somehow manages to push the idea through and past the higher, uh, well, various parts of the infantry uh, to the point where the, the, there's an acceptance that they, there might be a problem. In that respect, it, it gives room for engineers to actually start putting forward suggestions about how to uh, improve 
shooting prowess um, of, of soldiers more broadly, right? Uh, how to address questions of fire, fire discipline, uh, whether they can hit targets at what ranges, um, and how to open this up to a set of conversations that engineers might understand that hadn't previously been of um, something that could be discussed easily when military establishment was much more focused directly in and on uh, uh, things that were institutional markers of status like marksmanship. So once you switch, I think the, the point for me is, is once you switch out from looking at SLAM as uh, offering a statement about how battle and battle the battlefield works um, and whether soldiers shooting on or, or whether they, there's any evidence how strong the evidence is in relation to whether they shoot or not. Once you switch from that and start to think about how Marshall can be deployed rhetorically within the organisation as a way of framing arguments that lead to technical change and technical improvements, what you get is a completely different interpretation of Marshall because in those circumstances, his, if you like, journalism is very persuasive and it's very persuasive amongst a bunch of people who were actually resisting change rather than embracing it. And that seems like a great place to take a break. Matthew Ford has just laid out his approach to studying and utilizing the works of SLA Marshall. And in the next episode, we'll let the historians respond with their views on SLAM's place in their fields of study. Join us again on the next episode of A Better Peace, the War Room podcast, for the rest of the discussion. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to hear even more great content, subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.